we're going to see, at least partially, that, that second part of verse 5, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. We'll see Naomi's bitterness in just a moment. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 19 through 22. 1, 19 through 22. Before we hear God's Word read, let's go to Him again in prayer. Our God, we can be tempted to become bitter at the various manifestations of Your providence. We do pray, Lord, that even through this text that mentions so much of Naomi's bitterness that we would see the sweetness starting to bud. Help us, Lord, to see. In Christ's name, amen. So Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. Hear now the word of God. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You be seated. Not everyone has a good poker face, and by that I mean not everyone can mask his heart. Because we know, my wife and I, because we know our children well, it is easy for us to gauge how they are doing, for the most part. We can tell if one of them has done something wrong and wonders if we have noticed. Yes, we have noticed. We can tell if something strange has happened because they're face, their body language tips them off. We don't have superhuman abilities, just one of the mill parental powers of observation, to read faces. When it comes to certain emotions, which have become permanent postures, it's not overly challenging for us to see what is going on in the life of an individual. You just watch their faces, just look at their body language, If they cannot help but be joyful, you're going to see that. If they cannot help but be sad, you will eventually see that as well. And this evening, we are considering one of those permanent postures which has changed a person's countenance. We're considering the permanent posture of bitterness. Have you known someone who is bitter? Have you seen someone who is bitter? Bitter at God or bitter at another Or maybe you're the bitter one. Are you bitter at the Lord? Are you bitter at another person? In this text tonight, we come to a woman who has no interest in hiding her bitterness. In fact, she even seems to bask in this bitterness. She self-identifies as bitter even. And the sad truth is that she does not see herself as the problem for her bitterness. Out of a twisted view of justice and misguided expectations, she is bitter and she wants everyone to know who is to blame. 
And spoiler alert, it is not she. The point here we see in this text is that clouded by calamity, the bitter heart refuses to see true pleasantness. We can interpret God's providence either with woe or with hope. We can be woeful as we investigate the providence of God, or we can be hopeful. Let's consider that first way of responding, of interpreting the providence of God, that of a heart full of woe. Woe is me. We pick up the story of Naomi and Ruth with their shocking, surprising arrival. These two ladies go to Bethlehem. This is Naomi's return visit. But for this foreigner, Ruth, it is her first time here. The whole town is stirred up. It's stirred up because of Naomi's return and surely also because of Ruth's presence. And this word stirred can often mean to be confused or can mean to be in an uproar, like in a positive way. 1 Samuel 4, 5 says, As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. That's the same word as here. With, they were being in, they were in an uproar. They were stirred up. Or 1 Kings 4, or 145, it says, When David made Solomon king, the city rejoiced. The city was in an uproar. It was, it was, there was great jubilation, joy. And naturally, the people here want to know what has happened to Naomi. Surely the questions before her were, where have you been? Where have you been these 10 years, Naomi? And where's your husband? Didn't you have one? Elimelech? What about your sons? Didn't you have two sons, Mahlon and Kilion? What happened to them? And who's this individual over here? She doesn't look like an Israelite. Who is she? She looks strange. And so they wonder. And as they keep looking at Naomi's face, they perhaps even doubt that this is Naomi. They say, could this be Naomi? Is this really Naomi? doesn't look like her. And why do they wonder this? They wonder this because they see on her face pain, sorrow, an afflicted countenance. They see signs of sorrow, of suffering, of, of great grief. Those who once knew her to have a pleasant countenance now wonder, maybe this isn't Naomi. Maybe it's someone else. After all, ten years have expired. But surely Naomi has been sorely afflicted. We would be wrong to minimize this woman's pain. And with the lens of Scripture, as readers of Naomi's story, we can agree that she has truly suffered. Something we would never wish upon anyone. The loss of husband. Loss of two sons. The loss, even, not of death, but of departure of her daughter-in-law. She has suffered. She left her homeland, was in a foreign land for all those years, homesick. Surely, she has suffered. And Naomi is right to view God as almighty. That's what she calls him here. He is truly the sovereign one. And as such, all affliction does come from God the almighty. The trials of various kinds that come our way come from God above. 
No pain, dear ones, has touched you that was not first decreed by God. And so no pain shall be wasted pain. No suffering shall go unnoticed by your Father in heaven. No suffering shall go unused by your almighty Father in heaven. But she doesn't just call God almighty. She calls him Lord. Naomi situates the God as one who is over the covenant. He is Lord. He is Yahweh, that covenant name, that personal name that God had revealed to Israel. This is what you shall call me. Don't simply call me God. Call me Yahweh. Call me the Lord. Call me the one who keeps covenant with you. And so she's right. This affliction is coming not from some impersonal force out there, some false god, but the God who has covenanted with her and her people over and over and over, century after century. She's on the right track then to see the source of her situation. She isn't dealing with a God or a pantheon of gods that can be easily dismissed. As if we were to say, well, hey, Naomi, they don't actually exist. So they're not really the problem. So just cheer up. And for us, dear saints, we cannot view our affliction in its ultimate sense by saying, well, the devil did all of it. He's the only one to blame. After all, he's called the evil one, so all evil comes from him, and all pain that I experience then comes from him. We cannot give the devil that much credit. Even as Luther said, the devil is God's devil. That is to say, the devil is on a leash that's being held by God himself. That nothing ever happened to Job through the sinful ministry, if you will, of, the, of Satan apart from God himself. We cannot say, well, God had nothing to do with that. Whatever that thing was, a miscarriage, loss of a child, loss of a sibling, loss of a parent, loss of a job, whatever it is, we cannot say, well, God had nothing to do with that. For then we strip that person of any shred of hope. What we say is God had everything to do with that situation. And it is hard to interpret that providence It is a hard providence. But there is a smiling face of God behind that cloud. Every atom of our affliction must be viewed in the light of God as Almighty. Every shred of suffering must be understood in the light of God as El Shaddai, as the Lord, as the Powerful One. And that is why we cannot go with Naomi the rest of the way as she indicts the Lord God Almighty. She says, the Almighty has been against me. He has brought this calamity down upon my head. Yes, he is sovereign, but he has used his sovereignty not for good, but for this bitter calamity. 
It's not just that God as Almighty is against me. It's that God as Lord Almighty is against me. The covenant Lord has departed from me. I left the land for a time because I needed food. I need a place to be with the family, to raise a family. But I haven't left the covenant. But surely God has left me. I thought he said he would never do that. The Lord Almighty, God, is witness against me. The Lord God has testified against me. That's what she's saying. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? The one who should have been supporting me all along has in fact betrayed me. He has been an advocate against me. That's what the Lord God Almighty does with his covenant, with his almighty power. The essence of this accusation is that the Lord God Almighty is not for me, but instead against me. Dear ones, are you tempted to adopt this mindset when you face trials of various kinds? And here I don't have in mind necessarily just those trials that last maybe a few days, which are hard. Maybe those trials that last weeks, months, Years that will never be remedied until the Lord takes you home? Do you cry out not only, why, Lord, how long, O Lord, but why do you hate me? Why are you against me? Why are you now like all of my enemies? I thought, O God, that you were my God. I thought that you were my friend. I thought that you were my Savior. I thought that you were my Redeemer. I thought you would stick, with, stick to me closer than a brother. But you've left me. You're not for me. You're against me. That's what's being said of this great God. This false accusation of God is clearly based on a twisted view of God. Literally what she is saying is the Lord has caused me to be very bitter. The bitter heart says, this bitterness is God's doing. It is not my responsibility. All the fault is God's. I'm only bitter because of him. I'm innocent of these hard feelings. The Lord put this hardness in my heart. A bitter mind cannot see clearly the glory of God through the dark clouds of pain. This is the Almighty. This is the El Shaddai, which is often used to speak of God being powerful to keep his promises of blessing and prosperity. Genesis 49, 25, which is one of those two chapters of Jacob blessing his sons. It says, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. I wonder if Naomi had that text in mind. If she did, surely she scoffed blessings of the breasts and of the womb. Yeah, 
Obviously not. I have no more children. I don't have a husband. Where's the blessing? Where's the prosperity? Where is the divine kindness my people have have known? This woman's heart should be that which is expressed in Job 5.17. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. But instead, her heart is Job 6.4. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Naturally, a wrong view of God leads to a wrong view of self. Verse 21, the first part, she says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Do you wonder at her words? Naomi, did you really leave full and return empty? Are you sure about that? If you were so full, why then did you leave? And when you came back empty, I thought there was someone with you. I thought somebody who said she would always be with you. Life or death. Surely you didn't return empty. But of course, she has in her mind what we've already seen the last two sermons in this in this, in this chapter, so her hope resides in an earthly husband, an earthly offspring. Sometimes we say to the Israelites when we, when we hear how they wanted to go back to Egypt, we say, they say oh, the leeks and the onions. Some of us say, well, yeah, I guess leeks and, leeks and onions are pretty good. I personally don't care for them, but... Are leeks and onions worth 430 years of oppressive slavery? Do you, did you really have a good time in Egypt, O Israel? You're not thinking clearly about your affliction. You're not thinking clearly, Naomi, about what's going on, about your supposed fullness and emptiness. But in truth, beloved, to have the Lord and nothing of the earth is to be full. At the same time, to have the earth, but nothing of the Lord is to be empty. And so why then did God allow this affliction? Was it because he, the Lord God Almighty, was against her? Or instead, did he allow it because he is God of the covenant to her, to discipline her, to bring her to himself? Surely it's the latter. Thomas Jolie the Puritan says, Affliction is like the shepherd's dog to bark at and bring us in. Dear ones, God wills that the suffering that we undergo will cause us to go to Him. Not that full of affliction we would run away from Him, but that we would run into the refuge, into the strong tower that is God. And we have to ask, Is bitterness a better look for Naomi? And for now, Naomi, like many before her and since her time, she insists on bitterness. She is Naomi no more. She rebukes the town. Did you see that? 
Do not call me Naomi. Just as fervently as Ruth said to her, don't you dare tempt me to leave you, Naomi tells the people, don't you dare call me Naomi. Don't you dare call me pleasant. There's not a pleasant bone in my body anymore because God has caused me to be very bitter. There's no pleasantness. Bitter is better for Naomi at this time. She needs a name change. I'm no longer pleasant. You call me Mara from this point on. This is who I am now. This is my new normal. I am bitter. You look up the word bitter in the dictionary and you see my face. And it's contorted, angry, hardened countenance. You see me. I came across something which was pretty strange, but in this world of craziness, I guess we should just come to expect it. There's this woman, there's this thing called being transabled, okay? The whole trans ideology even goes beyond gender expressions, but it comes to physical capabilities or lack thereof. And there's this one who viewed herself as blind. She was a a physically seeing individual until she decided that she shouldn't have been seeing. She should have been blind. She thought her whole life that she would be a blind person. And so she had a doctor surgically remove her vision because that's what matched her feeling. I'm not a seeing person. I'm a blind person. So I need reality to match my feeling. Blindness is better for her. Bitterness is better for Naomi. Is bitterness better for you? It sure is easy to become bitter. You just have to allow all the offenses that people commit against you or that you think commit against you. You just have to allow them to pile upon you, to crush you, to fill up your heart. And just don't forgive any of them. Don't overlook them with love. Do not have compassion upon them as God in Christ has compassion on you. And you're on your way to bitterness. It's very easy. It's very easy to be bitter because we are sinners. And we live in a world full of sinners. And people do nasty things against us. People do awful, sinful things against us. And we against them. It is really easy to insist on bitterness. And the twisted, the whole twisted thing about this is that we feel good when we're bitter. Naomi felt good in her bitterness. She wanted that name change. Because to be bitter, what you say is, I have been unjustly treated, and nothing, no one, is going to remove that injustice. I am right to be this angry. I am right to be this hardened. I am right to be this way. I'm right to be bitter. 
blessedness, not bitterness, is our identity, dear ones. Jonah was once asked by God, mind you, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? And do you remember his response? Yes, I do well to be angry. Actually, it was a little bit different. He says, yes, I do very well to be angry. Can you imagine the audacity to say to the Lord, to argue with him, yes, I do very well to be angry. If you ask Naomi, excuse me, Mara, do you do well to be bitter? She would say, yes, I do well to be bitter. I do very well to be bitter. Why? Because God has caused me to be bitter. Brothers and sisters, do you do well to be bitter? Women regularly ask their husbands or their friends, what do you think about this dress? What about this makeup? Is this a good foundation? Do these jeans fit well? A lot of these are dangerous questions to ask. And of course, men are not absent from, these, from similar conversations. Hopefully, the objects differ. Does this tie fit with these clothes or with these shoes? Does this shirt make me look swole, as the kids say? Or as teens say, how's my drip? It's good to know a teenager or two, to know some of the lingo. If you don't know what drip is, just ask a teenager. But more important than one's physical appearance is one's spiritual posture. How we react spiritually surely affects our physical features. If we are depressed, our face is sad. If we are joyful, our face smiles. As we examine our circumstances, the trials that God brings our way, we do well to ask, do we do well to be bitter? Do we do well to be angry? Do we do well to yell at God? Our response before the Lord is never morally neutral. Our response before God is always godly or ungodly. How shall we view the God sent, made just for us afflictions? William Dyer, the Puritan, says, O Christians, under your greatest troubles lieth your greatest treasures. Afflictions are good, but not pleasant. Sin is pleasant, but not good. But there is more evil in a drop of corruption than there is in the sea of afflictions. Do you believe that? Do you believe that under your greatest troubles lieth your greatest treasures? That God really can use your greatest sorrows for your greatest joy? Afflictions are good but not pleasant. Sin is pleasant but not good. There's more than... There's more evil in a drop of corruption than there is in a sea of afflictions. The problem, the Puritan here is saying, isn't in the affliction itself. It's in the heart that still needs to be purified, that needs to be cleansed, that needs to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And it's, those, it's that sea of afflictions that God is using to wash away our sinfulness, our sinful proclivities, our corruption, to cleanse our conscience. Sinful self-descriptions do not honor God. 
For years now in our denomination, we have tried to make this very clear in the area of self-identifying homosexuals, self-describing homosexuals. The world's sin of transgenderism has bled into the church, and people seek to self-identify in ways that God does not honor, in ways that God disapproves. But it isn't just sexual self-descriptions that dishonor God. So do others. Adopting a bitter posture, yes, I do well to bitter, is a sinful self-description. I am an angry person, and there's no hope of my growth. I am an alcoholic, and there's no hope. I am forever depressed, and there is no hope. Those sinful, those self-descriptions are sinful as well. Never deny the Lord the transformative power of his spirit. It's not to say that you will be perfect this side of heaven. But give the Lord a little more credit. The Spirit indwells you. Christ wills your fruit-bearing. If he began a good work in you, surely he will complete it, will he not? Thomas Case, the Puritan, says, It is a great mistake and folly of men that they make more haste to get their afflictions removed than sanctified. Are we more concerned with the removal of the trial or the removal of our sin through that trial? What are we more concerned about? Our growth or the removal of the pain? Well, we want the removal of the pain, don't we? We want that immediate gratification. This hurts. I don't see a way out. I don't want to keep suffering because suffering is painful. And growth takes time. Growth takes a lifetime under the fatherly hand of God, working all things out. Every little situation, every major situation, everything in between, God working out all things for his glory and your growth. And that takes time. You are not any of those sinful self-descriptions, dear ones. You're a Christian. You're a child of God. You're a friend of Christ. You are a disciple. You are a beloved one. You are a saint. You are blessed. And all of that because of what Christ has done for you, not because of anything you've done. Verse 22, the second part says, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. When faced with trials full of sorrow and grief, we can remain hopeful. We don't have to have that posture of woe is me. But instead, we can say, there is hope in me. We can never be hopeful, not because of the refuge found in our hearts, but because of God's provision. Do you see how God provides here? This short section, verses 19 to 22, begins and ends with likely an overlooked fact. They didn't die. We just take that as a given, don't we? So there they are in Bethlehem. Despite those hard times, despite the famine, they were preserved. They didn't die. The Lord God Almighty, the Sovereign One, sustained these two women, and they survived. And not only did the Lord bring them back to Bethlehem, taking them by the hand from A to B, but what did he bring them to? 
but to the beginning of barley harvest. He brought them back to food. The Lord restored bread to the house of bread, and he kindly brought the ladies at the perfect time to receive earthly food from its heavenly source. And more than bread, the Lord gave Naomi one who has eaten heavenly bread, who has eaten the life-giving, life-sustaining word of God, ironically taught through Naomi. God has given Naomi Ruth. The God of Israel gives a devoted, faithful Gentile to a trial-wearied woman. In the spirit of Romans 11, the Lord provides daily hope and daily grace to Naomi through Ruth. God has not left Naomi, despite what she thinks, despite her indictment against the Lord. And God's provision continues through the provision not only of Ruth, but of himself. The Lord has not left this troubled woman who must learn reliance on the bread of life. This is truly remarkable, dear ones when you remember what she is accused of. What do we do when we are accused of betraying someone? What do we do when we are accused of injustice? Surely we have no, uh, we have no interest in remaining with that person, right? Well, they think that I'm an evildoer. They think I'm unjust. They think I've betrayed them. Why would I want anything to do with them? But what does God do to Naomi, to one who so very much does not deserve his beautiful presence, his faithful provision? What does he do? He stays. He takes her to Bethlehem, and he remains with her there. It was he who prepared Bethlehem with an ample barley harvest. It'll be he who soon feeds her. It'll be he who sticks closer to her than an Orpah, and even tighter than a Ruth. In a word, the Lord clings to Naomi, not because she is worthy, but because he is worthy of the name Lord, the one who makes covenant, the one who keeps covenant, even if it means dying, which is, that, which is exactly what he does. The Son of God, the angel of the Lord, Christ himself, provides his people with himself by dying on the cross. Committed nearness drives away bitterness. Our temptation before God is to have nothing else to do with him if we see that he is the source of our problems. We are tempted by the flesh. We are tempted by the world. We're tempted by the evil one to to move away from God. The pain has piled up over us. We are crushed, and so we are prone to wander. We are inclined to pull away from the means of grace. We may be tempted to say with Naomi, the Lord has caused me to be very bitter, and so I must turn away from him if I am to stop being bitter. He is the problem. I must get away from the problem, and then I will no longer be bitter. And our temptation before others is to have nothing else to do with them. They've hurt me too much. They've offended me one too many times. I'm done. I can no longer fellowship with this person. Heaven is where we will have to meet again. Until then, 
As long as, as long as I see them, as often as I think of them, I do well to be bitter. There's no possible way of changing my mindset, of changing my posture, as long as I see that person's face. But dear ones, this is not how the just Lord God Almighty has dealt with us hateful, bitter people. How did God, whose name was maligned, treat Naomi, whose name was Mara? God, whose name was dragged into the mud, who was maligned, was falsely accused. Well, he took it. He took it like the Son of God would one day take it. He blessed her who cursed him. The Son of God, Jesus the Christ, on the cross took upon himself all the woes that we deserve. Jesus carried our curses to the cross. He nailed them there, and he left us blessed. He returned to our unjust accusations with his Father's just declaration of our righteousness because of his righteous life, his righteous death, his righteous resurrection imputed to us. He has taken us from an estate of bitterness, and he has brought us into new life of everlasting blessedness. And that is where our hope lies, in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray. Our God, we see from this text that we do not do well to be bitter. We desire to be blessed. We desire to be full of compassion, full of forgiveness, full of love, full of tenderness. We know that we cannot be any of those things. We cannot be transformed from one degree of glory to another without Christ working in us, in our relationships, helping us to interpret all of the providential unfoldings. So we do pray that you, by your Spirit, would continue to work in us for your glory and our good. Amen.